The Hamlet Podcast, episode 93. Hello and welcome to this exploration of Shakespeare's Hamlet with me, your host, Connor Hanrity. The player queen has just reached the end of her earnest promise of undying fidelity to her beloved husband. Both here and hence, pursue me lasting strife, if once a widow, ever I be wife. She's laying it on a bit thick, and by now, even the least sensitive audience member at this performance should be starting to wonder why on earth Hamlet has so eagerly arranged for this play to be performed, since it relates so awkwardly to recent events at court. Hamlet himself is watching so eagerly that he can't resist his own commentary. He bursts in, saying, If she should break it now, as in, she could hardly break a vow so serious, could she? Which, of course, his mother rather did in her own o'er-hasty marriage. The scene is not quite over, and the player king accepts his wife's earnest promises. "'Tis deeply sworn. Sweet, leave me here a while. My spirits grow dull and fain I would beguile the tedious day with sleep." He acknowledges that she's made a very deep vow, and then suggests that she leave him for a while. His spirits are dull, and he reckons he can beguile or sweeten the tedious day with sleep. At this remove, of course, one wants to advise any king at any time that taking a nap in an orchard is the worst imaginable idea. As you'll remember, the story was given out that Hamlet's father died while sleeping in his orchard, stung by a serpent. Anyone with their head screwed on should by now be starting to feel at least a little uncomfortable about this play. The king does go to sleep, and his lady queen tenderly ends the scene. Sleep rock thy brain, and never come mischance between us twain. She wishes him a good rest, and hopes that nothing bad will ever come between them. Again, things you should never say in a play. The scene ends, and although some editions might say exeunt here, indicating that both actors leave the makeshift stage, it's more likely that the queen exits and the king sleeps. Perhaps there's a curtain or any number of other staging choices that could indicate that the scene has ended. Regardless, there's a slight pause in the playing, since the audience takes the opportunity to chat before the next scene begins. Hamlet can really play up his madness or his cheekiness now, depending on the mood of the room, because he gets straight to the point and asks his mother, Madam, how like you this play? Gertrude's answer is one of the most famous lines in Hamlet, and indeed of all of Shakespeare. The lady doth protest too much, methinks. The queen in the play is trying too hard. Gertrude's line could mean that the character is trying too hard with her husband, or that the actor who is playing the queen is laying it on too thick. The manner in which Gertrude delivers the line can also indicate how she's feeling about the play. Is she annoyed at Hamlet's choice? Is she nervous? Is she totally innocent? There are a great many options available. Thus far in the play, Gertrude has come across as a gracious queen who hasn't done much wrong except perhaps get married rather too quickly. It's in her response to this performance that we might start to see her in a new light. Does she have anything to hide, for example? Who knows? Hamlet certainly isn't impressed with his mother's response, and he has a stinging rejoinder to her suggestion that the fake queen is saying more than she needs to. He says, Oh, but she'll keep her word. 
the various currents and tensions between the audience watching this play are rather ingeniously arranged. Just as we are watching Hamlet and Gertrude have this little exchange, which isn't really little at all, since Hamlet just denounced his mother for breaking her promises to her first husband, Claudius chimes in with his own question. Have you heard the argument? Is there no offence in it? I quite like the idea that he's asking Polonius, since it would make little sense for him to be asking Hamlet, who we all know has chosen this play. Claudius perhaps hasn't been paying too much attention to the scene, or maybe he didn't pay attention to the dumb show, or indeed he might have seen everything, and is now getting very concerned that Hamlet might be up to something. So, logically, he checks in with Polonius to see if he knows what's going on. Has he heard the story of the play? Can he guarantee that there's nothing troublesome, no offence, in it? Before Polonius can or could get a word in, Hamlet switches his focus from Gertrude to Claudius. No, no, they do but jest. Poison in jest. No offence in the world. No, no, Hamlet is saying, they're only acting. They do but jest. Poison in jest. This is the first time the word has been mentioned in the play. The ghost referred to the leprous distilment that killed him, and the stage directions for the dumb show do mention poison, but nobody has said it aloud until now. And I think there's a little bit of wordplay here as well. It's not just poison and jest, but poison in jest. He's hinting at things that are going to come. Hamlet is playing a very dangerous game, prodding at Claudius to see if he can get the response he wants himself. The king holds his nerve and asks, What do you call the play? In his answer, Hamlet takes a step back towards the madness he's been presenting. The mousetrap. Mary, how? Tropically. This play is the image of a murder done in Vienna. Gonzago is the duke's name, his wife Baptista. You shall see anon. Tis a knavish piece of work. But what of that? Your majesty and we that have three souls, it touches us not. Let the gold jade wince. Our withers are unwrung. Earlier on, Hamlet called the play The Murder of Gonzago, as we know. Here again he's messing with Claudius by calling it The Mousetrap. Marry how? Tropically. How's it called that? Well, because of its tropes, or theme. The trope of a king being murdered. Trope and trap are both in the ear here, and perhaps there's room for Hamlet to hint at both of them. The play, he says, is the image of a murder done in Vienna. Here alone does Shakespeare give us any detail of what the original play that Hamlet has requested might have been. But given that Hamlet himself is giving this description, we can't really know. It's not terribly important. Gonzago is the duke's name, and his wife is called Baptista. The other Baptista in Shakespeare is a man, and he's the father of the two ladies in The Taming of the Shrew. Hamlet explains that we shall see anon, there's more to come. It's a knavish piece of work, a play about terribly bad behaviour, but what of that? Now he really goes for the jugular. Your majesty and we that have free souls, it touches us not. There's no offence in this play for anyone who is free of guilt. Hamlet's point being, if you have nothing on your conscience, then this knavery is mere entertainment. But since I know you don't have a free soul, this is absolutely aimed at you. He then quotes a proverbial expression, Let the gold jade wince, our withers are unwrung. There was something like an expression in Shakespeare's time that said, 
touch a gold horse on the back and he will wince. In other words, a horse that is worn out and tired, or gold, from the saddle, will wince or kick when you touch it. Hamlet's version of it is that a guilty conscience, weary of the saddle of its guilt, will likewise wince when it is touched, as it were. But, as he maintains the artifice of ignorance, our withers are unwrung, since again, with the idea of these free souls, his conscience, no more than Claudius's, is not carrying any heavy guilt. It's all a little complicated, but Hamlet has fired two rather serious potshots at Gertrude and Claudius, and they both wisely bite their tongues, since they are in full view of the court. Mercifully, the play continues. A new character enters, and Hamlet introduces him. This is one Lucianus, nephew to the king. Keeping things very interesting, Shakespeare doesn't have it that the new character is the king's brother. Instead, it's his nephew. We're about halfway through the play, Hamlet, now, and so our attention can subtly shift from the story about a brother killing one king to a nephew killing another. Again, nobody in the room should miss this. Now Ophelia pipes up, perhaps trying to calm Hamlet's giddy commentary, and she says, You are as good as a chorus, my lord. In other words, perhaps, calm down, Hamlet. He responds, I could interpret between you and your love if I could see the puppets dallying. Here Hamlet is reverting to this meanness towards Ophelia. He takes her notion of commentary and suggests that he could likewise comment or interpret between her and her lover if he could see them at it. The idea of Hamlet as stage manager or puppet master is at work here. Some editors have suggested even cruder meanings and associations for puppets, but I haven't been able to find anything especially convincing. Ophelia, again trying to placate him, says, You are keen, my lord, you are keen. Come on, Hamlet, your jokes are getting a little bit too sharp now. And he again twists her words. It would cost you a groaning to take off my edge. This seems to be very explicit. He's saying that the only way to take off or blunt his edge that has been so keen would be a groaning. Apparently, this would be a woman's groaning during the loss of her virginity or during childbirth, or indeed anything in between. It's kind of horrible and unnecessary thing for Hamlet to say to her, but she continues with another answer for him. Still better and worse. She's saying that his reply was cleverer but also meaner sharper and blunter, better and worse. Hamlet will never let her have the last word, and he quips, So you must take your husband's. This is a play on the traditional wedding vow, taking a spouse for better or worse. Hamlet lands yet another dig at Ophelia. If she has any hopes left of marrying him, he turns them against her with this sour little jibe. He turns to the actor now playing Lucianus and encourages him to get on with the show. Begin, murderer. Pox, leave thy damnable faces and begin. Come, the croaking raven doth bellow for revenge. Perhaps it's a little bit of a spoiler for Hamlet to call Lucianus murderer, but by now we all have a fair idea of the argument of this play. The actor is probably making faces to show how wicked he is as he sidles up towards the sleeping king, but Hamlet has no interest in this, shouting, Pox, leave thy damnable faces and begin. Come, he says, quoting a tawdry version of the story of Richard III that predated Shakespeare's own. The croaking raven doth bellow for revenge. 
There's no evidence in the play that they've been watching that Lucianus is going to murder Gonzago for revenge. But again, Shakespeare is blurring the lines at this central point in the play. The murderer is now the nephew, and the king should sleep with one eye open. Lucianus finally speaks next, but we'll save his dramatic contribution for the next episode. You can check out the website, thehamletpodcast.com, for the text, show notes, and links to previous episodes, and it will also be getting a makeover soon as the podcast approaches its second birthday. As ever, thank you for listening, and I'll speak to you soon.